0: Welcome uh, to the Forum at Holy Communion. My name is Mike. I am one of the priests at Holy Communion. We've been having a discussion in several of our forums around questions of housing and equity. Uh, And as we're in the midst of Black History Month, we're also taking a look at uh, issues facing the Black community in St. Louis. And housing is certainly one of them. We're really pleased today to have with us uh, the Reverend Gabrielle Kennedy. Uh, director of Faith and For the Sake of All and pastor at Buren Chapel AME in Herculaneum, Missouri. Really good to have you with us, Gabrielle. Um, Thanks so much. Yeah, and we're glad to have back with us Jeff Schulenberg. Jeff did a presentation with us last year at the forum um, Mm -hmm. around questions of housing, with um, some of the data from Faith and For the Sake of All. It was a really data-rich presentation. And so, Jeff, we're glad to have you back for what will probably be another data-rich presentation Uh, but looking at questions of housing. Um, So it's really good to welcome you both. Thank you both. Um, And I'll see your faces again at the end of the presentation. But for now, I'm gonna um, have us go over to Jeff's slides and let the two of you tell us a little bit about mobilizing the faithful around questions of housing.
1: Thanks so much, Reverend Mike. Um, Really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you all. Uh, So we welcome you to this pre-recorded version of the data portion of the housing workshop presented by Faith and for the Sake of All. Faith and for the Sake of All is a community-based organization committed to improving the health and well-being of African Americans by mobilizing the faithful. And we do this by beginning a conversation with faith communities around the history and conditions of structural racism and deciding what we'll do about it. Much of what we'll cover is based on the report pictured here uh, on the the right, the segregation in St. Louis, dismantling the divide. And it's a community uh, driven report on segregation and housing in St. Louis created in 2018 in partnership with community-based organizations focused on equity, such as For the Sake of All, um, uh, formerly uh, Health Equity Works, uh, which is formerly For the Sake of All, Art City Defenders, Ascend St. Louis Inc uh metropolitan st louis equal opportunity and housing council empower st louis invest stl and team tiff the report represents an extensive history of our region's use of segregation housing policies and practices to conc- uh, and concludes with 11 key recommendations to dismantle our uh, significant divides uh What we'll be talking about today, though, has most to do with the data. Before we begin, we should recognize that for far too many uh, in uh, the African-American community, the facts uh, that we will review represent a painfully lived reality with which you may be familiar. Uh, This review might help you to give voice to that story. Perhaps for some, it will help to organize your thoughts and help process uh, the experience Uh, of St. Louis in a way that helps to explain the realities, uh, this reality to others. For many in the white community, however, the facts that we will review represent a history that is often ignored and conveniently forgotten. Sometimes this data is intentionally buried, but for many, it is a shameful reality that is simply not understood or discussed. Only by shining a light on these truths can we hope to have an honest conversation about a path forward. To borrow from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., facing these facts can be a first step in seeking to shorten the long arc of the moral universe in pursuit of justice for some for the sake of all. So let's get started. So as we prepare to explore the history of housing Uh, Segregation in St. Louis, let's take a few moments to remind ourselves of the many years that led up to those realities. Uh, The racist policies that created the segregation of the 1900s were born from centuries of viewing African Americans as being less than their white counterparts. So lest we forget, let's run through a very brief history lesson of how Blacks came to America and to St. Louis. Blacks were forcibly removed from Africa as early as 1526, but the first acknowledged arrivals in what is now the United States were in 1619. into Point Comfort in the James River with 20 and odd Africans on board. In the following 250 years or so, An estimated 12.5 million captives were shipped to the New World. Although nearly 2 million died during the Middle Passage, uh, or the Great Maafa, as it is sometimes called, the drawing here depicts how the captives were crammed into the ship's hold, usually forced to lie nearly flat, shackled with little ventilation. More on that in a moment but roughly 600,000 would arrive in what is now the U.S. The Middle middle Passage took around three weeks, which were sheer hell for uh, those who were captured. We have the journals of Reverend Robert Walsh, who was on a ship that intercepted a slave ship shortly after the slave trade was declared illegal. Here's a recap of what he found. He found wretched conditions with 562 enslaved persons crammed into every available space. 55 had already died and been thrown overboard. There was an appalling stench with captives enclosed between uh, decks and wedged together in low cells, three feet high. They were chained by the neck and legs and manacled together in twos or threes. They were branded with the marks of their quote unquote owners and this was uh, one of the better ships, as the height between the decks could only be uh, as little as 18 inches. Many leapt overboard at the first opportunity to end their suffering. Consider the mindset at the time. In Virginia, A 1662 law made all children of enslaved mothers enslaved persons themselves, regardless of the father's race or status, so that rape by white slave masters couldn't inadvertently create a free child. A 1667 law codified that uh, enslaved persons who were converted to Christianity were still enslaved. Apparently, black souls mattered but Black lives did not. A 1669 law allowed enslaved persons to be killed for resisting authority. Under the US Constitution, an enslaved person was counted as three-fifths of a free person. 10 of the first 12 presidents owned enslaved persons. This is who we were as the United States became a nation. This is how little regard we had for black lives. Despite their treatment, the population of enslaved people grew steadily. By 1860, the census reported nearly four million enslaved persons in the US, about 13% of the population. They were concentrated across the South and along the fertile banks of the Mississippi River. Slavery was finally outlawed in 1865 with the passing of the 13th Amendment, but life improved very little for people of color. Jim Crow laws, black codes, and the white power structure drastically limited access to education, jobs, housing, and a safe environment. Violence against blacks was common as the KKK rose to prominence Many political and civic leaders, including sheriffs and police, were members. There were over 3,400 lynchings across the South and thousands of attacks on homes and individuals, often with little or no provocation and usually no recourse for the victims. understand that there was tremendous violence and oppression in the post-slavery South well into the mid-1900s. This, combined with perceived opportunities in the North and to the West, resulted in the Great Migration. From 1915 to 1970, over 6 million African Americans fled the South in search of a better life, all because of All the things we've named up until this point, all of the terror they had endured. The impact on St. Louis was significant. During this time, the African-American population grew around 250,000 up over 500 percent. The white population grew by half a million, an increase of 76 percent. African-Americans grew from 6% to 19% of the region's population. The patterns of population growth were very different between blacks and whites. The population shifted to the county where they made up 95% of that population by 1970. The black population was restricted largely to the city where 84% of the region's blacks lived as of 1970. The map shown here is based on US census data from 2010, and shows that the patterns established during the early 20th century persist even today. This begs the questions, how did we establish and maintain such rigid segregation between blacks and whites in St. Louis? And why has it persisted until this day?
2: The influx of 250,000 African-Americans during the Great Migration created pressure on whites who wanted their neighborhoods to remain white. As populations grew, there were explicit policies at the federal, state, and local levels that were designed to keep African-Americans out of the suburbs. The implementation of these policies can be grouped into two key periods of time. From the early 1900s to 1968, segregation was based explicitly on race. This was overt racism. The tools deployed included racial zoning, restrictive deed covenants, and FHA policies like redlining. These policies became illegal with the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968, but they also were extremely effective and created significant disparities in wealth between whites and blacks in St. Louis and across the country. In fact, the median wealth of white families in the U.S. is more than ten times that of black families even today. This wealth disparity enabled the second key period of time from 1968 to today, when segregation is now based on wealth. Understand that in many cases, wealth is a proxy for race, so we refer to this as covert racism. Discrimination that was once based on race is now based on wealth, maintaining the segregation based on race. The tools include zoning policies, eminent domain, annexation, and TIFs. Here are three of the main tools used to segregate St. Louis and most American cities explicitly by race. In in 1916, St. Louis passed a citywide racial zoning law that prohibited African-Americans from purchasing or renting renting housing in blocks that were more than 75% white. The intent here was to keep white blocks white and, quote, colored blocks colored, the very definition of segregation by race. It included the language shown here, including a, quote, reasonable provision whereby gradually such blocks may become in time occupied wholly by either white or colored people. Another race-based tool was the widespread use of restricted deed covenants. These were stipulations added to property deeds that banned the sale of homes to African Americans. By the 1940s, nearly 380 neighborhood deed covenants were in place around the city of St. Louis, each of them affecting hundreds of residential properties. Interestingly, some churches were sponsors of some racially restrictive covenants. Again, the wording typically included the following, quote, no property in said addition shall at any time be sold, conveyed, rented, or leased in whole or in part to any person or persons not of the white or Caucasian race. A third race-based segregation tool is redlining. In the 1930s, the newly created Home Owners Loan Corporation created, quote, security maps to help banks assign risk levels to various neighborhoods, based explicitly on racial lines. Neighborhoods with high percentages of African Americans were deemed high risk, which became the basis for lending institutions to deny mortgages or any loans into these neighborhoods. An area rated a D was described as quote, hazardous, marked by infiltration or the presence of a colored settlement or Negro colony. This approach was also adopted by the Federal Housing Administration. Note that in the early 1900s, home loans were limited to 50% of the home's value and were payable in three to five years. These terms put home ownership out of reach for many Americans. In 1933, President Roosevelt's New Deal included federally backed, more affordable home mortgages that required only 20 to 30% down and were payable over many more years. This made home buying a reality for a whole new generation of homeowners. But because of redlining, these new mortgages were not available to most African-Americans. And for decades, the American dream of home ownership was denied them. Obviously, this also blocked most African-American families from benefiting from home appreciation for decades. Developers of suburban subdivisions like Ferguson shown here and across the country had to get financing guaranteed by the Federal Housing Administration for these large-scale construction projects. But based on redlining, the FHA for decades told developers that financing would only be available to developers who built whites-only subdivisions. It was actually written into the, uh, the federal office's underwriting manual. So let's look at how these tools work together to institute and maintain segregated housing in St. Louis. I invite you to consider the story of the African-American Scholar sisters, Claudia and Cleopatra. They had been part of the Great Migration when they were little girls as their family moved to St. Louis from Greenville, Mississippi, to escape the cruelty and oppression of the Jim Crow South. Their family headed north in hopes of new opportunities and a chance to live the promise of America. But because of racial zoning and other policies, their family had to move into the, quote, Negro housing area in St. Louis, which was in the city. That was eventually bursting at the seams because of the continued migration of African Americans into our area. The sisters were once again on the move in 1966, looking for new housing in the St. Louis area, perhaps excited about the opportunity to start a new life in a new home. They could see beautiful new suburbs fanning out from the city limits, especially westward. But because of FHA policies, the builders of these suburbs had guaranteed whites only development. And that door was closed to the African-American Scholar sisters. So how about an existing home for sale in any number of neighborhoods around St. Louis? Well, most of those had racially restrictive covenants. Another door closed for the two sisters. Well, then how about buying a home in a neighborhood with mostly African-American residents? Well, most of these have been redlined, so even if they had the down payment, no bank would offer a mortgage on these properties. Door number three also closed to the Scholler Sisters. Their only option was to rent a house like the one they found on Wells Avenue, pictured in its current condition on the right. The Wells Avenue neighborhood, which was adjacent to a mostly African-American community, transitioned from being mostly white to mostly black in less than 10 years, and it was therefore redlined as Category C. Imagine the frustration of watching your white neighbors move out of the out to a brand new subdivision that had new schools, shopping malls, and beautiful parks. Watching white families buying into established neighborhoods, again with well established schools, shopping, and other amenities. They walk through the very doors that have been closed to you. And then realizing that you can't even buy a house in a black neighborhood because banks will not lend to you. So you sink money into rent payments, never building any equity or accumulating any wealth to pass on to your children. The neighborhood around you deteriorates quickly because redlining prevents any investment in the community. Businesses close, grocery stores move out, and nearly all houses become rental units, often subdivided, overcrowded, and undermaintained by absentee landlords. The tax base plummets and funding for schools, community services, and local amenities disappears. Even when you are given the house That you've been renting for years, which is what happened with the Scholler sisters. Things have deteriorated so badly that your children inherit a financial burden, not an opportunity. You've watched white children inheriting intergenerational wealth while your little girl gets nothing. The race-based laws and policies that drove all of this are now illegal, but the damage has been done. Just look at the two sides of the Del Mar divide to see the results of these policies today. An entire race of American citizens has been denied economic opportunity and has been systematically and legally oppressed. The system wasn't broken. It worked exactly as it was designed, with systemic racism built in. So how effective were these laws and policies in denying opportunities to African Americans? Note that of the 70,000 housing units built in the post-war period in St. Louis city and county between 1947 and 1952, only 35 units were available to people of color. Again, African-American families had little choice but to rent space in disinvested neighborhood or occasionally buying a property with very low value. Meanwhile, whites enjoyed low interest, FHA-supported mortgages, GI Bill support, and access to upscale neighborhoods with better schools, services, and amenities. FHA loan approvals show how the opportunity to purchase homes and build wealth during this time period was denied to most African Americans. Between 1962 and 1967, of the 400,000 St. Louis area mortgages that were backed by the FHA, only 3.3% were given to African Americans. And this is not just a St. Louis problem. Only 2% of homes insured nationally by the FHA between 1946 and 1959 were available to African Americans. So this greatly limited the ability of the black community to enjoy home appreciation and accumulate intergenerational wealth. Ask yourself, how long has your family enjoyed home ownership and the benefits of housing appreciation? How much has this added to your family's wealth and stability? Where would you be without it? We are still living with the effects of redlining today. The Fair Housing Act was legislation designed to prohibit discrimination in all facets of the home buying process, such as those we've discussed. It was enacted in 1968, but was never fully enforced. It wasn't even given any enforcement mechanism by law until the 1980s. The decades of federal, state, and local policy from the time of the Great Migration until 1968 left African Americans without the wealth that whites had accumulated through home equity that was subsidized by the GI Bill and the FHA. Again, these loans were only accessible to whites. So at this point in our history, Overtly segregationist policies based on race have effectively created wide disparities in wealth accumulation between whites and people of color. Moving forward from 1968, policies that by law cannot segregate based on race can now segregate based on wealth accumulation without ever explicitly naming race, ethnicity, or color. This chart shows the ongoing nature of the black-white health gap in the U.S. The median white household wealth is more than 10 times that of black households at levels similar to those in 1968. Limited progress that had been made was effectively wiped out when the housing bubble burst and the Great Recession occurred in 2008. Sadly, without change, it could take more than 200 years for the average African-American family to catch up. So in 1968 and through to today, laws and policies that segregate based on wealth can be used to continue the race-based segregation from past decades. So as of 1968, overtly segregationist policies based on race have effectively created wide disparities in wealth accumulation between whites and people of color. Moving forward, it is now illegal to segregate based on race, so segregation is done by wealth accumulation It is still systemic racism, but it's done covertly, disguised as economic policy. And here are a few of the wealth-based tools that have helped to maintain segregated neighborhoods. Zoning policies have been used broadly in our area to specify single-family homes and larger lots. This helps protect the the, uh, tax base of a neighborhood and keep out less affluent people. The higher tax base supports better schools, nicer parks, and more amenities and further separates the haves from the have nots. It's interesting to note that the redlining rating of a neighborhood from the 1930s is directly correlated with the percent of single family homes in 2019, almost 90 years later. Another tool of wealth based segregation is eminent domain, which is when a government or agency takes private property for public use. This has often been used to acquire land from African-American communities who don't have the resources or influence to fight back. And this is what happened to Dr. Howard Venable, a distinguished African-American eye surgeon who tried to build a home in Creve Coeur in the 1950s. City leaders held back permits and fought his progress, and they finally just blighted the property and took it away by eminent domain. Then they spot zoned it as a park, which was named Birney Park, after a former mayor. However, because of the efforts of a group seeking some measure of restorative justice, the park was recently renamed Dr. H. Philip Venable Memorial Park. Annexation is the incorporation of new territory into the domain of a city, such as was done with Meacham Park in 1991. It was a modest but proud, mostly African-American community with many families living there for generations, One-third of the land was taken to build a shopping center. It remains highly segregated today. Similar things happened in Brentwood to build the Brentwood Promenade and in Clayton to build what is now the finance hub of our region. And throughout South St. Louis to build Highway 44. Very seldom do we see similar disruption and seizing of territory in white communities. Tax increment financing forces, forgives, I mean, forgives some of the taxes generated by new development in order to pay for some of the construction costs and required community improvements. TIFs are intended to be used in disinvested areas that would not be able to lure development otherwise. However, 84% of the TIFs granted from 2000 to 2014 in St. Louis were concentrated on wealthier white neighborhoods instead of African American ones. Even when TIFs are applied to dis- disinvested areas, the development being funded often displaces existing residents and subsequent gentrification can raise property values and rent, putting properties out of reach from previous for previous tenants. And the tax dollars that go back to the developers do not go to schools and public services. A 2011 report from the East-West Gateway Council of Governments concluded that, quote, The use of tax incentives has exacerbated economic and racial disparity in the St. Louis region. More recently, we've seen similar abuse in the implementation of opportunity zones in the 2017 tax bill that was signed into law. Its provisions reward investment in impoverished areas by deferring taxes on the sale of stock and other holdings if the assets from those sales are invested in certain high need geographic areas. The problem, as the New York Times reported last August, is that the benefits have largely gone to wealthy Americans who have often made investments with no obvious benefit to the surrounding communities. Again, programs intended to help disinvested communities are manipulated to benefit the wealthy instead. As we reflect on the use of race-based policies prior to 1968 and wealth-based policies thereafter, perhaps you might wonder just how intentional this really was. Consider the words of Lee Atwater, who was a Republican Party strategist and advisor to President Ronald Reagan. There's an audio recording of him from 1981 explaining the Southern strategy, and we're going to show you excerpts from that talk here. We want to warn you that he uses the N-word several times. We hesitated to use it for that reason, but you just can't sanitize history if you truly want to learn from it. And here is what he said. You start out in 1954 by saying what he said. By 1968, you can't say that. It hurts you. It backfires. You say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you're talking about cutting taxes and all those things you're talking about are totally economic things. And a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. You follow me? Because obviously sitting around and saying we want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than saying the N-word. He's clearly outlining moving from race-based language that is no longer legal to economic language or wealth-based. These policies were very intentional. Taken together, the race-based segregation policies up to 1968 and the wealth-based ones since then have effectively created and maintained highly segregated neighborhoods in St. Louis. It's important to note that the wealth-based policies remain in effect today. They are part of the system in which we exist. Note that the system, again, is not broken. It's working exactly as it has been designed. Let's take a look just how effective these policies have been. As we look at the impact of segregated living And disinvestment in communities of color, we see clear patterns emerging in our region. They can be seen in racial segregation. They can be seen in concentrated poverty and the rates of death from chronic disease, even cancer in our area. The overlap in all of these maps is unmistakable and it highlights the unequal distribution of resources for health and well-being in our region. It's important to note that these patterns are not accidental, nor are they the result of individual choices of the people who live there. The segregation and economic decline of African-American neighborhoods in our city and in other cities across the country are the result of deliberate laws and policies of federal, state, and local governments. Patterns outlined on the previous slide have continued into the current COVID-19 pandemic. Per the CDC, hospitalizations have been six times higher and deaths 12 times higher for COVID-19 patients with reported underlying conditions. Sadly, segregated communities of color experience higher rates of chronic disease, such as asthma, diabetes, and heart disease, and these become the comorbidities that result in much higher death rates from COVID-19. As compared to whites, blacks and Hispanics are nearly three times more likely to die from the pandemic. The fact that so many in these communities also have forward-facing jobs that place them at greater risk for infection just adds to the burden. We call many of them essential employees during the crisis, but their importance to society has been largely overlooked up until now. In fact, the segregation created in the past results in significant differences in the quality and length of life for those involved. Consider that a baby born into 63106 near the Jeff Vanderloo neighborhood in North City has an average life expectancy of just 67 years. Only nine miles away in Clayton, a baby has an average life expectancy of 85 years. That's a difference of 18 years, which happens to be the average duration of retirement years in the U.S. Zip code 63106 is 95% African American, while 63105 is 78% white. Segregation causes our region to suffer not only in its physical health, but its mental and emotional health as well. How familiar were we with the laws and policies that have been discussed here? How many misperceptions do we carry with us and how do they impact our ability to our ability to understand and relate to each other? The forgotten history of segregation in St. Louis must be brought into the light before we can effectively discuss where to go from here. So as we've seen here today, being born into the wrong zip code can cost you 18 years in average life expectancy. Yes, there are exceptions in both directions, but on average, you will live a very different life just because of the zip code that you're born into. Let's look into some of the drivers of that disparity in life expectancy. Many of us might think that neighborhood violence or access to medical care would be the biggest drivers in premature deaths, but we would be wrong. For example, neighborhood violence is one of the smallest factors falling into the 5% due to environmental exposure. In fact, genetics and behavior have a far greater impact on health outcomes. And it's worth noting that behavior happens in context. With behavior, we're talking about diet, exercise, smoking, etc. If your streets are unsafe, you can't go outside to exercise. If you have to go five to 10 miles using public transportation with two children in tow just to get to a grocery store with a decent produce section, it's awfully hard to eat right. Our behavior is strongly influenced by our surroundings. Also consider that genetic predisposition can be much more of a factor in poor communities than in wealthier communities. In those wealthy communities, many of the conditions that result from genetic predisposition are managed with robust medical care and healthy options for diet and exercise. Whites in West County might have the same predispositions as those in the city, but they have access to resources that keep their illnesses from developing. In addition to the impact on health and life expectancy, segregation also impacts our regional economic health, making us as a region less competitive. Segregated regions like ours, by race as well as by skills, have slower rates of income growth and property value appreciation, which reduces the tax base. As shown on the slide, segregated suburbs have only two-thirds the tax base of the national average. During economic recovery, more inclusive cities tend to recover better. And according to the Urban Institute, the St. Louis region ranks 260th out of 274 on an economic health ranking. Speaking of health, let's take a look at at the individual and communal impacts on health and well-being. Shown here is a case study from Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson, the 63106 project. This is a nonprofit racial equity initiative that is telling the story of families in zip code 63106, which we talked about earlier. This is one of the neighborhoods where segregation by wealth has created disinvestment, and most of whose residents can't afford to move out, despite being surrounded by unsafe and challenging conditions. Meet here Stephen Jones. He describes himself as smart and a little nerdy and only child who grew up and secretly wanted to be Bill Nye, the science guy. He's now 33, unemployed, disabled, and facing a global pandemic, but with fierce hopes for the careers of his four, that his four daughters might pursue. Stephen was a military brat with a strict single mother, living on the south side of the city, but being bused out to LaSalle Springs Middle School in Wildwood through eighth grade. After a year of high school in Eureka, He transferred to Normandy, finding school boring. He took the GED as a sophomore without telling his mother and and he passed. He started hanging with the wrong crew instead of going to school. In his words, made a baby. And his dream of being Bill Nye, the science guy, was over. Stephen went to the Job Corps for culinary training as within four years, he was a grill master at Red Lobster. Then came, unexpectedly, a grand mal seizure. He had to learn to walk again, and he experienced life on disability. He picked up some work while on disability, doing laundry to try to buy his girls a few presents. He didn't understand the rules about how much he could or couldn't earn, and ended up losing his Medicaid, his disability, and the food stamps. He quit the laundry to take a job paying, a higher-paying job doing janitorial work for Boeing. He had just finished the training at Boeing when the country went on lockdown due to the pandemic. Because he hadn't yet received a paycheck from Boeing, he wasn't considered an employee and he had quit his previous job to do the training with Boeing. So now he had no disability or unemployment. The disinvestment in his neighborhood and its schools took Stephen off track. But he is determined that his daughters will stay focused, and he does all the more cleaning and laundry to provide for them. His second oldest girl saw his seizures and wants to be a doctor so she can fix his brain. All of his daughters are named with references to God. He knows that they are all at higher risk for COVID and that the 63106 zip code comes with disadvantages. He says, quote, up there, you. Your wife and your kids have their own cars. And if you have a job, it's most likely somewhere that has taken the right precautions. They don't feel that we are necessary. So this concludes the data portion of the housing workshop conducted by Faith and for the Sake of All. In a workshop setting, we would be breaking you into small groups to help you process the information that we brought to you today by reflecting on a few questions. We're providing a couple of those questions here in case you'd like to give them some thought. We'd also like to invite you to read more about faith and for the sake of all at the addresses shown here. We thank you for your attention to these important issues and look forward to continuing the discussion with you. Thank you.
0: Jeff and Gabrielle, thank you. Um, We are gonna have a chance to get together and uh, talk about some of the discussion questions uh, in this weird COVID reality where we're, we're breaking this up a little bit, but uh, hopefully folks will get a chance to watch and to listen in to this presentation ahead of Sunday. And then Sunday at 1130, uh, Sign in up to 10 minutes early, if you just want to say hi to some friends, but at 1130 uh, on our virtual coffee hour, all the links are at holycommunion.net uh, you can sign in and be part of the small group discussions about uh, ways to get in involved in, uh, moving and pushing back against some of the statistics that you've seen. Uh, Holy communion has been on a journey around issues of housing equity, but part of what we've seen is where you live um, and the historical conditions that landed a lot of families where they are living has a huge out, um, like a huge input on what happens in terms of generational poverty um, and outcomes. So, If you want to be part of the discussion about how to do something as a church, we look forward to talking with you on Sunday about that 1130 virtual coffee hour. Um, Jeff, Gabrielle, thank you so much. A lot of that is really hard to hear, um, but really important for us to get a chance to talk about and and face. So really appreciate it. I really appreciate the chance to talk through some of the slides. If I can get one first question in, um, huge amount of history into in those slides. Uh, I mean, you cover 400 plus years of uh, of history in those slides and I kept thinking in our congregation, uh, there are folks that were involved in Ferguson Commission work. There were folks that were breaking redlining in U-City in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, So it's a congregation that's been at work on some of these issues. Uh, But if you were to say, you know, in a congregation that's straddled the Del Mar divide that has uh, gotten its nose in the midst of a TIF question in University City. Um, when you look at the next few months, as we hopefully start to see the other side of the pandemic, uh, what are some of the most important indicators we should be watching as a community of faith um, and places we should be listening?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, um, Reverend Mike. I think you know, one of the things that it's important for us to, to be looking at, especially as uh, people of faith, is um, there's some like an internal barometer, if you will, about just how comfortable I am with mm-hmm. the work that I am doing. Uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot is not just um, doing something because it needs to be done um, and, and, getting, and, and, and focusing on the doing, but also focusing on the being. Like, mm-hmm. what does this work mean for who I am? As a person of faith, how am I being transformed in this work? What is it I'm risking in order to do this work? And as we look at uh, congregations, um, and, and as we talk with allies, allies to uh, the Black community, uh, what makes an ally is uh, a person who is willing to risk organizations who are willing to, to willing to risk um, uh, what they have in order to get to more of as we just come off of MLK, a more of beloved community. And mm-hmm. we can't do that. We can't really truly be committed unless we are willing to possibly give up something of what we have, some of the privilege even that we've been able to have as a result of all the things that we've talked about up until now.
0: Important reflections. I think it, reflections that are, are kind of an ongoing part of who we are at Holy Communion, but particularly looking into questions of housing, I think, and uh, as we make some decisions going forward as a church as to where we're going to invest some time and some energy about housing, I think the invitation is really solid. I really, it's it's rare to get this big of a presentation, this sweeping of a presentation with this many data points in it. Um, And I hope that, you know, on a weekend when we are celebrating the first African-American priest ordained, uh, in the early days of, um, of, the, of the country, uh, who was one of the first voices to publicly challenge slavery uh, all the way back at the very beginning of the country's founding. I think it's important to think about how we stay connected to these whole systems. Really appreciate your time. And I really look forward to the conversation on Sunday. Thank you all so much. Sounds good. God bless. Thanks God so bless.
1: much, Mike.